The scripture reading this morning is from Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, one of the great things we get to do here at First Free is uh, be a part of a student's life. Uh, Anna Castillo, Harold, I know, Harold, all right. Uh, Anna Harrell is going to be preaching today. She's a seminary student here across the street at uh, Seattle Pacific Seminary. She's also a certi- certified ministerial candidate. Did I get that right? Conference ministerial. Conference ministerial <laughs> candidate. I'm still learning this free Methodist language. Uh, ministerial candidate in the Free Methodist Church. And uh, so I, invi- I have invited her to preach this summer and uh, along with the Ephesians text. She's also a trumpet player, musician. Uh, works at NQACC here with us as well. So, but one of the things I love about being across from a seminary is we get to be a part of encouraging and giving opportunities to seminary students to kind of learn their craft. And one of the things is preaching, and that's a big part of pastoral ministry. And so we want to just, I wanted to just give uh, this opportunity to her and also want to pray, let's pray for her uh, and that God would just speak through her this morning to us. Let's pray. God, thank you for Anna. Thank you for what you put on her heart, how she's looked into the scripture and she's seen you and you've revealed yourself to her. And so, Lord, pray that you give her wisdom, give her confidence, pray that everything that you have put on her heart would be clear to us. And anything that's not clear would just be set aside, Lord, and that you would just allow your spirit, your Holy Spirit to speak through her this morning as she brings your word and shares your word with us today about peace in Christ and about coming together as one family, no longer strangers or foreigners, but one in the household of God. And so, Lord, thank you for her and for the word that you've put in her heart today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
How many of you have ever had a TV show as a kid that you were just really excited about, and then you grew up and you're like, whatever happened to that show? Do any of you guys have one of those? Yeah. For me, one of those shows was Rugrats. And as I was preparing to preach this morning, it just popped into my mind, oh, hey, yeah, that show. And in one of the episodes, specifically, um, one of the older children, Angelica, was coming back from a wedding and was really excited because she had been the flower girl in that wedding. And she was so excited that she wanted to recreate the experience. So she went to two of the babies and said, hey, you two, you need to get married. And Lil, the little girl on the right uh, with the napkin on her head, was super excited. She's like, all right, let's do this thing. Chucky, on the other hand, was a little more skeptical and reports to his friends, I don't know that I want to be stuck to Lil forever. <laughs> um, and I can't say that I blame Chucky. Forever is a really, really long time to be stuck with one person. Some of you guys know I am married to John over here, and we're coming up on our first year anniversary. Yay. <laughs> Maybe. Um, and when I was getting ready to get married, I was just like Lil. I was really excited. I thought everything was going to be great. The wedding day was going to be the best day of my life. You know, all the typical bride things. And then the wedding day got there. And it was chaotic. And there was a lot of decision making last minute that I had to do. And I admit, I even had a few bridezilla moments and broke down in tears at one point. And then I actually showed up to the place where John met me and we were to get married. And in the moment, there were still so many details swirling around in my brain that I walked down the aisle with my parents, got handed to John, and all of it was completely outside of my brain. I really wasn't paying close attention to what I was about to do until it came time for me to say my vows to him. And in that moment, I instantly realized I am committing my life in front of God to this man forever, and forever is a really long time. And I remember thinking to myself as I'm saying these vows that I'm going to love him and cherish him in health, in sickness, for rich, for poor, and I'm going, do I really want to put up with this guy forever? Do I still have time? I could say I don't, right? But in the end, of course, my answer was, I do. But with that I do, my name changed. As Pastor Matt attempted to say, it was once Analicia Maria Castillo. It is now Analicia Maria Castillo Harrell. And the time it took to change that was about this big. It was almost instantaneously. And I had to face the new reality of what it meant to be married to something completely other than myself. And I imagine that's probably how the Ephesians were feeling when they realized, oh, it's not just us anymore, it's us and these Jewish believers as well. We're now one in Christ. That was probably a bit of a wake-up call, and they probably weren't feeling terribly excited about it. After all, it was the Jewish believers who crucified their own Savior. And I think Paul gets to that. Paul's reaching out to them and saying, yes, you are one, but remember, you weren't always this way. And so he reminds the Gentiles, as it is so easy to do, 
who they were before. And the Gentiles really didn't want to know who they were before for good reasons. Uh, the Gentiles were referred to by the Jews as being the uncircumcised. That's a huge deal. It was a big marker on what set the Jews aside from anybody else in the world. They didn't want to be those set apart, or they didn't want to not be part of those set apart people. And Paul wants them to remember that distinction. But then, Paul doesn't just stop there. Paul doesn't just let them get away with being the uncircumcised. He takes it one step further, and he calls out a number of different names that I don't think any of us would want to have to hear. He says, you're aliens. You're foreigners to the promises of God's covenant. You are without hope and without God. I don't know about you, but if I were one of the Ephesians, I'd be like, uh, yeah, there's a reason I forgot all that. Paul wants them to remember who they were because without our past, it's impossible for us to remember who we have then become. It says in verse 12, so remember that you were once Gentiles by physical descent who were called uncircumcised by the Jews who are physically circumcised. Do you see that distinction that is happening? Verse 12 goes further, and like I said, names those differences that they were. Without God, without hope. Being without the promise. All things that we don't want to remember that we were. And yet, by losing sight of who we once were, we also lose out on the grace that God offers us by having been at one time without. But Paul wasn't reminding them of all of these things, all of these withoutnesses, such that they would feel bad and go, oh man, why'd you have to remind me of all that stuff? Paul was doing it in order to remind them of where that grace came from in the first place. He didn't want them to feel like less thans, but he wanted them to know fully who they were in Christ. He wanted them to see the difference between the Jewish believers and themselves. The Jewish believers were God's chosen people. God had set them apart for a specific purpose, to be the hope to the world through whom Christ's graciousness and God's grace could be revealed to the rest of the world. God was very exclusive with the use of the Jewish believers. He didn't choose anybody else, and frankly, the Jews did nothing of their own merit to deserve that choice. In fact, they were probably some of the worst people God could have chosen for that purpose. And he used them. But with that came a huge division between the Jews and the Gentiles. There were walls that got built up, not just emotional walls, but physical walls. At the time of Jesus' ministry, and even prior, the temple had several different walls that were made into courts that divided who it was that got to be fully in the presence of God. In the first court, the Gentiles were allowed to enter, but that's as far in as they got. The second court, Jewish women and children. 
the third court, men. The fourth, priests. And lastly, the high priest. Notice that the Jews, or that the Gentiles, rather, were all the way at the bottom of that list. They didn't even get to go as far as the women and children got to go. They were about as far removed from God as they could physically be. And there was literally a wall there that separated them. But that's not the first time that a wall stood between the Gentiles and God. In the Old Testament, in the book of Joshua, the Jews are getting ready finally to enter into the land that God had promised them for so many years. And so Joshua, not being quite so sure that he trusts that God is just going to hand the city over to him, sends in a couple of spies to go look and see what it is they're going to be up against. The spies don't do what they're supposed to do and instead end up in the house of a woman who does a certain type of business. Those adults in the room, you know what kind of business I'm referring to. The spies hang out there. The king finds out it doesn't take much time. In fact, it's possible that the king himself might have had some business that he had done with Rahab a time or two. The spies immediately are found out, and the king goes to Rahab and says, bring me the spies who have been in your home. And Rahab lies. She says, they aren't here anymore, and I don't know where they've gone. When in reality, she put them up on the roof. She hid them until the king and his guards had left and then released them and told them exactly where to run so that the king wouldn't find them. But before she does this, the spies are curious as to why on earth would this Gentile of all people, this person whom we're going to destroy in a couple days, help us out? Why would she hide us? Why would she go out of her way to do this thing for people who are completely different than herself? And she tells them, I've heard of the God who has saved you from Egypt. I've heard of the things that he has done to bring you out of that land. And because I have heard this, my heart has melted in fear. Can you imagine what it would be like to hear of a God who parted a sea so that people could escape and immediately crushed the army that fell behind it in that sea? That should make you afraid. And Rahab knew that fear. Rahab had heard the story and was afraid of this God and confessed to the, Gen to the Jews sorry, that she knew that this God that had saved them, that had brought them out of Egypt, was the God of all creation. Now that wall that stood between the Jews and the people of Jericho did get destroyed. But God didn't destroy Rahab. In fact, the spies specifically told her, if you hang a red rope from your window when we come, it will remind us to pull you out and save both you and your family. So when they came and the walls came down, Rahab's life and her family's life, because of her faith in God, had been spared. In the same way, the wall that divided the Gentiles 
and the Jews had been brought down. But it wasn't brought down because the Gentiles had done anything, and it wasn't brought down because the Jews had done anything. It was brought down because by God's grace, he had chosen a specific group of people out of whom Jesus Christ came to be the one and final way that anything that divides Jew, Gentile, any other category that you want to put in there, young, old, it broke that barrier down. Last week, Pastor Matt referenced that Paul uses words to help cue the reader into what it is that we need to be paying attention to. And he told you to watch out for Paul's big butt. Well, there's another one in here. It's in verse 13. It says, but Christ came. It is Christ who is that barrier or destroyer of the barrier. Christ came. And through Christ, we have the ability to become one. It is Christ who breaks down that barrier, who keeps that exclusive group and uses the intentional exclusivity of the Jews to become the way in which all people have access to the Father. In other words, through one man, which is as exclusive as you can get, we have now eternal inclusivity through Christ to be one body. And so, as our memory verse points to, he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. He came both to the Jew, those who were near, and he preached his peace and he preached reconciliation, but he didn't stop there. He went out to the places where people, especially the Jews, thought he shouldn't have gone. He went out to the poor. He went out to the sick. He went out to those in need. And he preached the same message of God's grace. The same message that says, all of us are now welcome. All of us now have access to the Father through my death and resurrection. And when we look at that, I think it's a little bit of an interesting imagery. The specific way in which Paul says we all have access to the Father through Christ by the one Spirit. Notice that all members of the Godhead have just been named. Through the Father, or access to the Father, through Christ, by one Spirit. Three members of the Godhead that come together as one. Just like we, the church, Jew and Gentile come together in Christ to become one body. The two entities of the believers joined in Christ mirror that triune relationship. It is us who then become just like Christ, just like that image that we are made in in God to unite both Jew and Gentile with Christ. Three things together in the reflection of our own maker. I told you already it was a huge shock to me when I got married 
and I had to realize, oh, I'm a new person now. What the heck do I do with this? I've never been married before. I wish, I really wish I could tell you that was the last time I ever had to learn that my life was different. And it was the last time that I got a cold splash of water to the face of what it meant to be someone's wife. Sadly, that's not true. It's happened several times. One in particular that I remember that was a huge eye-opener to me was about a month into our marriage. We had been driving home from work and apparently established who was going to take on what task when we got home. I apparently volunteered to make dinner, and John had taken on paying some of the bills. While I had managed to forget this arrangement by the time we got home, and I went to the kitchen, started making dinner, John opened up his computer and immediately started working on bills. But because I didn't remember this arrangement that we had worked out, all I saw was that my husband had tuned me out and was now completely invested in whatever it was he was doing on his computer. The expectation that I had as a new bride to come home and have a romantic evening together with my husband, where we make dinner together, and then we talk about our day together, and then we wash the clothes together, and then we do all the things together. It didn't happen that way. And I'm sitting there going, but I'm an introvert, and I know John's an introvert, so obviously my expectation of togetherness at home would be shared. Why is this not happening the way I expected? I later realized John had a completely different experience in that moment. John saw me working in the kitchen and him working as bills as a great way to be connected. He was engaged in an activity, I was engaged in an activity, we were both relatively in the same room together. It was great connection time. And it was one of the first times I had to realize we might both be introverts, but John is John and Anna is Anna, and John has a totally different way of being and existing than Anna has. And somehow, in our marriage, we're gonna have to find a way to make that completely one person and that completely other person come together to make something new. I had to learn how is John going to retain his identity as John as I, Anna, retain my identity as Anna? And yet somehow together, we both become Mr. and Mrs. Harrell. I had no idea how to do that. And I'll admit, we're still working on that. We'll probably be working on that for quite some time. But I think, it's very similar to what Paul was trying to wake the Ephesians up to see. The Ephesians were all too excited to know themselves as new believers. The first half of the second chapter of Ephesians is all about helping each individual believer recognize the ways in which they have been raised from dead into new life in Christ. But Paul immediately turns the corner only 11 verses into the second chapter, and says, yes, and you have been raised to life together in the body, both Jew and Gentile, together. He knew that this stuck-togetherness 
was going to be hard. And so he reminds them yet again, now through Christ, you are fellow citizens with the Jews. Through Christ, you now have a new identity and a new bond with which you have to live into. And so he gives them what I like to refer to as the charge. He's explained to them, here's who you were. You were once a people without God. Through Christ, you now have access to the Father. And now it is your turn to learn how to live into this Christliness with the Jews, to become one body together such that the whole world will know who this person is that I have sent to bring my people back to me. So he tells them that they are built on a foundation. He doesn't want to freak them out. He's not telling them, here's something that you have to suddenly do brand new, it's never been done before. You have a foundation of the apostles and the prophets, years and years and years of history of people coming together and learning how to be one body. The Jews have been doing it for a long time, granted not perfectly, but they've been doing it for a long time. Follow the history of the prophets, follow the history of the apostles, and on that foundation, form the church. And so with that, he calls these people to become a temple. I think in the CEB version, it says to raise as a temple. The version I was using, which I thought was the CEB, it might actually have been ESV, says to grow. I think it's really tempting sometimes to forget that as believers, we're still growing. We're still becoming that Christ-like body. And Paul knows that. That's why he said, I want you to grow into a temple that is dedicated to the Lord. So how do we, as the body, grow? And in our growth, how do we also become a dwelling place for God? How is it that not just on the outside, not just on a Sunday morning when we're handing out really nicely put together bulletins, or we have a really awesome slide project them, or a really great worship team up here. Not just the outward appearance of a good and right church, but an inward appearance, a place where God is actively dwelling in us. How do we have that too? And I think it's not that easy. When I got married to John, or actually months before it, I of course got to have some input as to what my wedding ring would look like. Well, I was very specific. There wasn't some input from me. There was, it will look like this. And I was specific for a reason. I wanted three stones on my ring. And at first people were like, okay, whatever. Give the bride what she wants, give her a three stone ring. But there was a reason why I wanted three stones. For me, it was a physical, visual reminder of two different people coming together in the presence of God, both two different people, to become one. You can pick whichever side you want. Let's say John's the stone on the left, I'm the stone on the right. 
and God in the middle is what binds us together. Two stones that never become one stone and yet are bound together in that ring with God as the center. That is the image that Paul is trying to help the Ephesians learn to become. The Jews, the Gentiles, standing side by side as bride to their groom, Jesus. And it isn't always easy, as I can attest to, to be a bride to a groom. It isn't easy to always know how to relate to somebody that is drastically different than yourself. And yet, that is exactly what we have become in Christ. And for most of us, I imagine the majority of us fall into the category of Gentile. That most of us in this room are probably wondering, okay, well, we don't exactly hang out with the Jews very much, so how are we, if we're all Gentiles, supposed to be this one body? I think it goes even within the body of even just Gentiles, that there's exclusivity that we can create in our own body as a church that divides us instead of uniting us. And that isn't to say that the individual aspects of what we all bring to the table aren't important. They're absolutely important. My marriage wouldn't look like what it is if I suddenly decided to become John. Then there'd just be two Johns in the world, and who wants that? (laughs) I had to stay myself. And so I think, just like the Ephesians, we're so quick as a church to forget where we've been, who we've been, what what we have been through, and how we got to the place that we are at. It's easy for those of us who have been following Jesus' example for years and years to forget what it was like to be without God, to be on the outside looking in. And so, for those of us that are in that place, I challenge you this morning to think about who is it that perhaps you haven't noticed, or you have noticed, but maybe you've looked down on them and thought, they're way too immature in their walk, or worse yet, they haven't even started. I challenge you to reach out to those people, to encourage them, to invite them to the inside of this body, to say to that person, you, along with everybody else, are welcome. In Christ, you have been saved, and you are welcome here. Maybe that means you write a letter to that person. Maybe it means you grab them after church and you connect with them. Whoever that person might be for you, I challenge you to reach out and say, give them a word of encouragement. At the same time, you might be feeling like there are people in the body who have made you feel like you're not good enough. Maybe they've told you that you're too young to know how to follow Jesus, or you're too old and you've given up on growth and development. Maybe they've told you you're not smart enough, or you're too smart. You know way too much about scripture and we can't keep up with you. Whatever it is, perhaps somebody has made you feel like you don't belong. And I would invite you 
to learn to forgive that person, both in prayer and in person? How do you see yourself as being one in the body of Christ with one another? And some of you, this may be the first time you've ever heard that God's grace was for you. I want you to know that no matter how big or how dark or how scary that thing in you that you think that God couldn't possibly forgive, he has. God has invited everyone to be on the inside. Maybe you're feeling like, I don't know, maybe I'm just, I'm too scared. I can't, I can't do this. I won't be accepted. I don't know what to do. I want you to know that just like all the rest of us who have gone through the process of confessing our sin and of accepting God's grace, that it is possible that God's grace is bigger than whatever barrier you think might be there. And I invite you to come, if that's you, confess your sin to God and ask him to break that barrier for you. If that's you, I invite you to come speak with me or one of our other pastors so we can pray with you and help you to take that next step in your faith. But maybe you're here and you're going, well, yeah, I agree with the Gentiles. Those Jews, they killed their own savior, and now I've been watching the church for years and years and years, and, well, frankly, the church hasn't been doing so great. They've harmed people. They've hurt people. They make people feel exactly the opposite of loved by God. And so maybe you're wondering, yeah, I want this love that they keep preaching and keep talking about, but I'm not so sure I trust it. If you're ready to accept that God's grace could be enough to heal you and to forgive you, I challenge you to embrace the possibility that God's grace is also at work in the body of Christ and that we are not all, all the way there yet. That is why we have to have the one spirit who is helping to drive us closer and closer into that Christ-likeness. It is by the power of the spirit through Christ that we have access to the Father. So if that's you, I pray for you that you relinquish those fears and recognize that you are not being invited into a perfect and holy church. You are being invited into a church full of broken and hurt people. And that together, we get to believe in a grace that is bigger than any of us, more powerful than any of us. And that together, we will become a one body together in Christ. So no matter where you're at this morning, no matter what you're feeling, whether you're feeling scared to be a part of the church, whether you're feeling hurt by the church, whether you're already a part of the church and you're wondering, how do I become one in the body of Christ? I ask you to remember that in that body, we are not being set 
into something completely different. We are being united with our differences into one. Remember that we were once without God, and now through Christ, we have again access to God. We were once intentionally excluded from the presence of God, and through Christ, we are now eternally included. I ask you, and challenge you even, to find the way in your own spirit to help create and to help further that body as eternally included people coming into and growing into the holy temple for God. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the grace that you gave us in creation, the grace that you extended us just for making us. And God, I thank you for that moment when we turned from you and you extended that grace even further by calling a specific group of people to be the hope of your love and your grace in the world. And God, I thank you even more that from that exclusive group, you chose one man, your son, to be sacrificed on behalf of our sin, and that through him, your grace has been expounded so much more than we could ever have asked for or even imagined, and that by your grace alone, we have been saved through Christ to become one body. I ask now, Lord, that as we become that temple and that dwelling place for you, that you work in our hearts, in our minds, and in our hands as we learn how to take the many things that make us different and bring them together, not enmeshed into one new thing, but distinctly different and yet united as a body. I pray for the hearts that are uncertain of your grace, that are untrusting of your grace, that your spirit move in them to reveal to them the power of your love and the extension of your love that knows no bounds. I ask for the church itself that we continue to grow and continue to become the beacon through which your hope gets revealed to the world and that when the time comes for you to return, that your church, your bride, will be ready to meet you face to face again. God, I ask all of these things in your name.